Hey, let me welcome you into our fifth week. This is week number five of a current teaching series uh, that we're calling Seven Strong, Seven Strong, Overcoming High Tension. As most of you know, we're spending these weeks together discovering what are seven qualities or character traits that when they are present in our lives, they will enable us, empower us to bear up under the weights and the burdens and the pressures and the heaviness of life. They will allow us to not collapse when life gets difficult. Now, this is week number five, and so you should know some fundamental things about this teaching already. So I'm going to give you a pop quiz this morning, if you don't mind. I'm going to give you a numbers quiz, okay? So we're studying, I want you just to shout the answer, we're studying how many books of the Old Testament in this series, how many books there are? You got it, three of them. We're studying three books. They're the three post-exilic books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And in those three books, we are learning about how many different lives are we studying? How many people? Five. You got it? There are five people. Who are they? Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Mordecai. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Mordecai. Three books, five people. And from those five people, we are learning about how many qualities or character traits? Boy, that was the weakest one, and y'all should know it, right? It's the Seven Strong series. There are seven traits that we are learning about. Seven traits from five people in three books of the Bible. So far, we've studied three of these seven. Today we're coming to number four. Let me remind you of the three that we have uh, talked about in the previous three weeks. If you've missed a week, you can write these down and even go back online and get that teaching. We began by talking about the endurance of Zerubbabel. We all need endurance, right? Zerubbabel was this one who was the governor of Judea, who was commissioned with rebuilding the temple of God in Jerusalem. Took him over 20 years to do it. He faced all sorts of difficulties and hardships, but he was faithful to the task and he stayed with, uh, with it and uh, he persevered and persisted and he was uh, uh, faithful in completing the job because of his endurance. We talked about the gracious spirit of Esther, how that Esther came from a low place. She was an orphan that God raised up to the throne of Persia. And all through that, she uh, kept a humble and a gracious spirit. Thirdly, last weekend, we talked about the integrity of Mordecai. The integrity of Mordecai, because he would not violate his devotion to God. He lived with integrity and would not bow to, uh, to wicked Haman. So, so far we've learned about endurance, graciousness, and integrity. Now, by the way, I should encourage you, if you're not already connected to a life group, every single week we have over 50 groups that are gathering throughout three counties, and they are studying the things we're learning on Sunday mornings, talking about those things, learning and helping one another to apply those things in uh, our lives. We're starting new groups all the time. In fact, I was just told this morning we've got a brand new group starting this week. Uh, so that'll take that, uh, what, over 55, something like that groups. And if, if you'd like to even start a group, uh, you can go by the Welcome Center today or the Information Center and see Pastor Chris Owens. He will be there. Now today we're coming to the fourth of these seven qualities. We're going to be learning about Esther again but not about our graciousness. Today we're thinking about her courage. Would you write it down? We're going to talk about the courage of Esther. The courage of Esther. 
Now, we're in chapter number four, and in just a moment, we're going to read that entire chapter. It's only 17 verses. We'll read it all in just a minute. But let me begin by reminding you of where we were last week in chapter three, where we were zeroing in on the sinister plot of Haman to have every Jewish person in the Persian Empire murdered. This hatred that Haman had for the Jewish people was so blind and so fierce that he was willing to bring about a holocaust that would literally murder every Jewish person from Ethiopia to India. Let me take you to chapter 3 just to remind you of this. Look at verse 12. Esther chapter 3 verse 12. Then were the king's scribes called on the 13th day of the first month. And there was written according to all that Haman had commanded the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over every province and to the rulers of every people of every province according to the writing thereof to every people after every language. In the name of King Ahasuerus was it written and sealed with the king's ring and these are the letters that were sent by posts or couriers unto all the king's provinces. Here's the command to destroy and to kill and to cause to perish all the Jewish people, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and then to take from them, once they are killed, to take their things, to take the spoil of them for a prey. He had such hatred. Haman had such hatred for these Jewish people that he was willing to have them all killed regardless of who they were. Elderly people, young children, all of them would have been slaughtered in one day. And last week we talked about why he hated them so desperately and, and how that in Mordecai and his refusal to bow down, Haman found his justification for the genocide of the Jewish people. And by the time you finish verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13, their fate is sealed. There's no hope. They are all going to die. And at that point in the text, and that point in the, the history of the Jewish people, they only have one hope in all the world. And that one hope is Esther. She alone is in a position to come to their defense. Because of her marriage to King Ahasuerus, because she is the queen, she alone is the one that can come and rescue them. And really, rescue us as well. Because if you think about it, this all took place around 485, 450 uh, B.C. And had every Jewish person in the 5th century B.C. died, there would have been no Jesus, there would have been no Calvary, there would have been no salvation, and we would have been born and lived and died with no hope of ever having the forgiveness of our sins. And so Esther's becoming the heroine of Israel really makes her the heroine of the world, doesn't it? Because she saved the Messiah seed. She made it possible that Jesus could come and be born. Well, she's their only hope. And if you read the rest of the book of Esther, and of course we won't today, you can do it on your own time. But when you read chapters 5 through 10, you'll see where she does, in fact, rescue them. She does become the heroine in this biblical uh, drama, and their lives are spared. In fact, go over to chapter 7 quickly. Look at chapter number 7. 
and verse number nine, where you'll find that God turns the tables. Esther is rescued along with the Jewish people and Haman, who plotted their destruction, actually dies. He is executed instead. Chapter seven, verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. That's verse number 10, chapter seven, verse 10. They hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Have you ever heard that old say? Well, listen, be careful. You might get hung on your own gallows. Well, that comes from Esther chapter number seven. It's exactly what happened to Haman. And to make sure you understand the text, I want you to understand this is not a gallows like you might see in a Western movie where they hang the bandits for the bank robbery. It's not where they are hanged by a rope. This actually means a post, and it's, it's erected about 70 feet tall, sharpened at the top, and to be hanged on the gallows meant, and I will say this in a tender way, uh, as tenderly as possible, it means that he was impaled on the top of that post, 70 feet in the air, so that everybody around the capital city could see what had happened to Haman. And because Haman was defeated and because the Jewish people were rescued, then the Bible tells us that they had a great celebration. What began as a certain death with much grieving ended as a a sure rescue and an absolute celebration. Turn one more page. Look at chapter number 9. Chapter 9, verses 17 down through verse number 20 or 21 Chapter 9, verse 17 says, On the 13th day of the month of Adar, remember that was the day they were all to die. We just read that in chapter 3, verse 13, that same day. Instead of dying, instead of uh, grieving the loss of their nation on that day, because of the intervention of Esther, chapter 9, verse 17 says, On the 13th day of the month of Adar, on the 14th day of the same day, they, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Verse number 19, therefore the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwalled towns made the 14th day of the month of Adar a day of gladness and feasting and a good day and a day of sending portions or offerings to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in the provinces of the king of King Ahasuerus both near and far to establish this among them that they should keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same Yearly. So what you have in chapter 9 is the rescue of the Jewish people, the celebration of their rescue, and then the establishment of an annual celebration, an annual holiday, where every year throughout their history they would always remember how that uh, Esther had come to their rescue and saved them from certain death at the hands of Haman. And they celebrated it year after year after year. And by the way, did you know that this celebration remains in effect even until today? Jewish people all over the world, every March or spring, that corresponds with the month of Adar on, our, uh, on the Hebrew calendar, every March or April, Jewish people around the world celebrate the festive holiday of Purim, P-U-R-I-M. If you have Jewish friends, I promise you, they celebrate Purim. And it's, it's the celebration of the fact that they were delivered from the plot of Haman. Now, interestingly, the word Purim comes from chapter number 3 of Esther. Look at it, chapter 3, verse 7, where the Bible says that Haman cast poor. The word poor means lots. He cast the lots or he rolled the dice. The word poor means dice or Purim or Purim is multiple or plural 
of, uh, of lots. So he cast the lots, but God determined how they landed, and Haman ended up dying on his own gallows instead of Mordecai and the Jews all dying. And so they celebrate Purim even until today to remember how that God delivered them. Now, it's interesting the way that they celebrate. I want to make sure you don't miss this. So if you're listening, would you shout amen? Watch this. Purim for the Jewish people is rather like Halloween for us. And I don't mean that they celebrate the same thing, but they dress up. It's a costume uh, holiday. So you'll see Jewish people, uh, particularly children, but even adults as well, dressed in full costumes. Many of the girls, little girls dressing like Queen Esther, many of the young boys dressing like Mordecai, none of them dressed like Haman, just so you know. They dress up uh, in these costumes and they go about uh, collecting candy and getting gifts and having great meals and feasts as they celebrate the defeat of Haman. One of the things that they eat when they come together for these great feasts is a dessert which is called hamantashen. Hamantashen. Um, and some of you know what hamantashen is. I actually brought some uh, with me to the uh, platform today. Now, these are triangular shaped, um, they're, they're very soft, I had to be careful with them. Triangular shaped, three pointed pastries, okay? Hamantashen. And it means Haman's ears. And they're made to look like ears. So you could kind of see that, couldn't you? Like that would be an ear. And so part of their celebration is, well, since God gave us the victory over Haman and he's gone, we're ears, ears. It'll be all right. I'm not going to be able to speak for a minute. Give me a second. Now, it's a wonderful pastry and I will never do that again. You can get one of those today in the coffee shop. They made them just special for today. I thought that was a neat thing for them to do. When you leave, you can pick up some of those. or if you, I'll leave those there. You can fight for those if you want to. But they eat hamantashen uh, or Haman's ears. Now, they do something else that's fun. And that is they read the book of Esther. As a part of their celebration, when they gather with family or they gather at a Jewish synagogue or a community center, uh, or a Kabod house, they will read the book of Esther, all 10 chapters. They'll read the whole thing. They'll do it twice during Purim. But they will then, uh, every time that Haman's name is mentioned in the text, all the Jewish people will make a loud noise. They'll, they'll, make no, they'll bring noisemakers, or they'll boo, or they'll hiss, or they'll go, no, every time Haman's name is read. And it's a lot of fun, and it just says we're blotting Haman out. You want to try it? Would you do it? Would you try it with me? Go to chapter five. And the reason I'm going to chapter five is because there are four verses in chapter five where Haman's name is mentioned four verses in a row. So chapter five, verse nine. I'm going to read the passage. Every time I, I say the word Haman, you just yell out, boo. Now we're doing this because it's, it's, it's what the Jews do, okay? Do not leave me hanging, all right? <laughs> Esther 5, verse 9. Then went Haman. For... Yeah. <laughs> That's so good. One more time. Then went Haman forth yeah. that day with a joyful heart. But when Haman yeah. saw Mordecai in the king's gate, he stood not up nor moved for him. He was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself when he came home. He sent and called his friends and Zeresh, his wife, 
And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the, magnet, uh, the multitude of his children and the things wherein the king had uh, promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. And Haman said, "More, that's so good. Give yourself a round of applause. That's great. You're, you're like a great Jewish synagogue congregation. That's a lot of fun to do it, but it honestly is a, a reminder every single year that God, by his grace and in his sovereignty, delivered the nation of Israel. Now, all of the joy represented in Purim every year, all of this joy and festivity associated with the rescue of their nation through the intervention of Esther could not have been possible without Esther putting her own well-being and even her life at risk. And this is what I want you to think about. That the joy of a nation, the Jewish nation, and in a very real way, the joy of every Christian who will spend eternity in heaven is rooted in, was rescued by this one queen, Queen Esther. And she could not have done it had she not pressed through her fear and had courage. And this is what chapter number four is about. Esther chapter number four, we're going to see her courage. You follow along as I read. It's only a a short chapter. I'll read beginning in verse 1. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, that is the plan of Haman to have all the Jews killed, when Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent or tore his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. And he even came before the king's gate. He didn't enter the gate because none could enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told her what was happening. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent clothing to clothe Mordecai and to take away that sackcloth from him. But he refused it, received it not. Then called Esther for Hatok, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend to her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai. Go talk to Mordecai. Find out what's going on to know what it was and why it was. What's he grieving about? So Hatak went forth to Mordecai unto the street of the city, which is before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him and of the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. And he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go in unto the king and make supplication unto him and make request before him for her people. I'm going to stop right there. I want you to write in the margin of your Bible somewhere that in verse number 8, she was to reveal her nationality. Remember, prior to this, King Ahasuerus has no idea that Queen Esther is a Jewish girl. He just knows she's a girl from the empire. He doesn't know she's a Jew. And in verse 8, Haman says, it, or Mordecai says, it's time. It's time for you to tell him that you are a Jew. Verse 9, so Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And Esther 
spake unto Hatok and said, give this reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king in the inner court who is not called or summoned, there is only one law regarding that person, and that is to put them to death, except uh, such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called into, uh, in unto the king for 30 days. And they told Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther with this reply. Do not think with thyself that you shall escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if you hold your peace at this time, then deliverance shall arise to the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house shall be destroyed. And who knows, or don't you know, or can't you see that you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them return to Mordecai this answer. She said to him, go and gather together all the Jews that are in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, day or night. I also and my maidens will fast likewise and so I will go in unto the king. I will break the law and go in before the king. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Now, there's nothing in this passage about the grieving of Mordecai or the Jewish people that should surprise any of us. It's reasonable, it's not surprising that upon hearing that the entire nation is going to be slaughtered, they would break out in grieving. Of course they would. Can you imagine living somewhere in one of these 27 provinces of the empire? One day a courier comes riding in, a herald comes in to the town square. Hear ye, hear ye. Opens a scroll, reads the scroll, and then posts it on the bulletin board of the town or of the village. And the, and the, uh, the uh, uh, note says, the posting says... That on the 13th of Adar, in about one year, every Jewish person in this village will be murdered. Old men, old women, children, infants, toddlers, men and women, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish. You're going to die. You can imagine, can't you? I mean, you can imagine mothers sweeping up their babies and holding them close and grieving over them. Husbands going to their wives and, and, and holding them close and promising to try to do something to protect them. Maybe looking for a way out of town. How can we, how can we get away? But where would they go? They're in the Persian Empire. It stretches farther than they could ever travel. You can imagine how the grieving would happen. Verse 1 describes it for us. Mordecai, when he gets this word, he tears his garments. He puts on sackcloth. He sits in ashes. And verse number 3 says, as the word spreads throughout the kingdom, this happens throughout the kingdom. And these things, these are the symbols of their grieving. To tear the clothes, to, to rip the garment. It's an outward symbol of inward brokenness. It says, my heart is ripped out of my chest. My heart is torn my heart is broken, and so I rip my outer garment. You may remember when Jesus was standing before the high priest in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, and the high priest said, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, I am, and he ripped, the, the, the high priest ripped his garment to, to express such despair and, and, and uh, anger. His heart was broken that Jesus would claim to be the son of God, though Jesus was the son of God. 
The book of Joel says that we ought to tear our hearts and not our garments. It's a symbol of our hearts being broken. They sat in sackcloth with ashes. You've heard that phrase before. You know what sackcloth and ashes means. It's, a, it's an outward symbol of, of discomfort and of, and of mourning and of grieving and of a refusal to be at ease or to be at comfort. Sackcloth was literally a garment made of rough animal skin with the hair on it, usually goat skin, goat's hair. is very uncomfortable. It would be like you getting up in the morning and putting on burlap. You're just going to wear burlap all day and there's nothing comfortable. It scrapes and rubs all day long. They would put ashes on. This is to go to the, to the fire pit and to take ash and begin to wipe it all over your body. They would pour it on their head and, and pull it down over their hair and their face until everything that you could see about them was ashen, white. I'm dying is what it indicates. I'm, I'm brokenhearted. I am, I am living uh, with death. And then they would weep and wail, both Mordecai, verse 1 And all the Jews in the empire, verse 3, they wept aloud, they wailed before God. This is a, again, it's a very Eastern way of showing my grief and my despair. You know, after the uh, uh, city of Jerusalem fell to the Romans and all of the Jews were driven out of Jerusalem around 135 AD, from that point forward up until the 20th century, Jews who would be in Jerusalem would make their way to a little part of a wall. It was part of the western wall of the Temple Mount, the retaining wall, but it was as close as they could get to the Holy of Holies, and they would go there to pray. They still go there to pray today, and you know what that wall is called, don't you? It's called the, it's the Wailing Wall. It's more correctly called the Western Wall today. They're more dignified in this 21st century, but through the ages it was called the Wailing Wall. Why? Because the Jews would come there and they wouldn't pray quietly. They would wail. It's part of their culture that you show your grief by, by, by effusive, loud, weeping and wailing. There's even professional uh, weepers, professional mourners who would be hired to attend the funeral of a loved one so that it would be obvious to all that they were missed in their death. Ripping of garments. Wearing of sackcloth, rubbing of ash, wailing out loud. This is the condition of the Jewish people in this text. And when you read chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it makes it clear that Esther, living in the comforts of the royal palace, has no idea what's happening. She doesn't know anything about what Haman has plotted. She doesn't know anything about the king's decree. She has no clue that the Jewish people are getting ready to be slaughtered. And so when she hears that Mordecai is in the street in sackcloth and ashes and weeping aloud, she sends, hey, talk, find out what's going on. Why is he crying? Take him some clothes. What's going on with him? The Bible says that Mordecai sends word to her, verse number eight. He tells Uh, to let her know the king is going to have all the Jews killed. And then in verse number 8 of chapter 4, he makes his ask very plain. Really, it's not even just an ask. It's a command. Remember, Queen Esther obeys Mordecai. He raised her as his own daughter. Even when she's the queen, she follows his guide, his lead, his instructions. He makes not an ask, but a command. Look at it, verse 8. You tell her 
that she must go before the king and she must make an intervention. She must intercede on our behalf. She must beg for our lives and for her own life. Tell her to go in and reveal to her husband that she is a Jew and if he goes through with this, she will die like all the Jews throughout his empire. And the passage tells us in verse number 11 and 12 that in that moment, Esther is gripped with fear. Verse number 11, she sends word back to him. Verse number 12, you know I can't do that. All the king's servants knows, everybody knows, you can't just go in to the king of the world's inner court. You, you can't just walk into the throne room. You have to be invited. You have, to, you have to have a summons to come, even if you're his wife. And she says, I haven't been called in 30 days. Now, understand, this is not a marriage like any marriage you've ever known or been a part of. Uh, Ahasuerus had many wives and many concubines. And sure, he loved Esther above them all, but he had not invited her into his presence in the last 30 days. She says, I haven't been invited into his presence in 30 days. I can't go. If I do, verses 11 and 12, I will die if I do what you're asking me to do. What is the one overriding emotion in verses 11 and 12? What is compelling her? What's driving her action or more correctly, her inaction? It's fear, right? She is locked down with fear and her fear is crippling her. And what she needed in that moment when she says, I'm, I can't go or I will die, what she needed was courage. Man, she needed courage to rise up within her. And it's interesting, when you go to chapter 5, look at chapter 5, verse number 1. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, It came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel, stood in the inner court of the king's house. She did it. She did it. Now, here's the question. How do you get from chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, I can't do that, I'll die, to chapter 5, verse 1, there she stands, uninvited in the king's presence. How do you get from point A to point B. Where did her courage come from? Well, the text tells us, or at least it gives us great indications as to where her courage came from. Write these things down because we need to learn them as well. Esther's courage was drawn from some good advice. Write it down. Courage comes from good advice. She says in verses 11 and 12, I cannot go in before the king or I will die. Listen to Mordecai's advice beginning in verse 13. Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, do not think within yourself that you shall escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. Stop right there. He immediately begins to turn her thinking to help her think in the right way because her focus is here. I haven't been invited. The law is clear. If you go into the king's presence without invited, you will die. That's all that matters. I cannot go. I'm afraid I will die. Send him word. I can't go. I will die. And his advice and his word back to her is, you need to understand, you're not safe in that palace. You're a Jew. The king's command will be followed regarding you as well. And he caused her to begin to turn and think differently. And that's what good advice does. If y'all are listening, I want you to shout amen. amen. Listen carefully. Sometimes you are in a situation where you are afraid. 
What's next? What do I do? I need to do this, but I'm afraid to do that. I need to make that decision, but oh, that's, that's scary. And we're, we're locked down in fear. Or maybe we're going in a wrong direction. We're, we're living in sinful patterns. And we need in those moments good advice. And sadly, too often we only accept bad advice. Because sometimes we go ask advice from people who don't know God, don't love God, don't understand his word, and we just really want them to affirm the fears that we're already living by. The voices that you listen to matter. I'll say that again. If you're going to live with courage to do what God wants you to do, then the voices that are speaking to you matter. And you need good advice. And good advice is biblical advice. Good advice is what is rooted in the truth of Scripture. And not only do we all need good advice, we need to give good advice. When someone comes to you and they say, I'm looking at this situation, I need to make that decision, I'm afraid about this, what should I do? Before you answer, pause, and make sure that the advice that you give is rooted in truth and Scripture. She drew courage from good advice. Number two, she drew courage from good theology. She was thinking rightly about God. Look at verse number 14. He speaks to her about the sovereignty of God. For if you altogether hold your peace, if you don't speak up now, if you don't intervene on behalf of the Jewish people, if you remain silent at this time, then know this, that enlargement, it means space to live, Deliverance will come from somewhere else. God will keep his word to his people. He will deliver his people. But you and your father's house will perish. And don't you know that God has placed you here for this very moment? You can hear Mordecai saying, don't you get it? This is your moment. God brought you to the throne so that you could rescue your people. And he helped her to think rightly about God. Now you need to hear me say, if you don't have good theology, if you don't think correctly about God, his nature, his promises, his integrity, his faithfulness, if you don't think rightly about God, you will never live with courage because you will always be bound up in fear, believing that you're on your own. He gave her good theology. The third thing that gave her courage was good praying. I started to say good disciplines, but I mean, they're just fast and pray. So it is what it is. Good praying. She says in verse number 15, verse 15, Esther bade this return to Mordecai, uh, Mordecai, this answer, go and gather together all the Jews that you can find that are present in Susa and fast for me. Now, fasting meant fasting and praying. Fast and pray for me. Don't eat or drink for three days Night or day, I also and my maidens, we will fast likewise. And so shall I go in to the king. So the Jewish people are going to be annihilated. Esther is positioned to help, but she's afraid. And Mordecai says, I want you to listen to my advice. Learn the truth about God. Let's cover this thing with prayer. And motivated and encouraged by his advice, motivated and encouraged by her right theology, and covered in prayer, something rose up within her. You know what that thing was? It was courage. It rose up within her. So that by the time you get from chapter 4, verse 11, to chapter 5 and verse number 1, she is standing before the king. Look at it again. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel. And she stood in the inner court of the king's house over 
against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house. Verse 2, and it was so that when the king lifted his eyes and saw Esther the queen standing in the court uninvited. Are you listening? Anything could have happened. He could have flown into a rage. What are you doing in here? You were uninvited. Off with her head. He could have said, away from me, and she would have never been invited into his presence again. He could have had her killed on the spot, executed in the moment. And don't you know that she was shaken in her royal robes? Don't you know that on that morning when she got dressed and she knew where she was going and she put on those robes and she goes walking through the hallways and people are going, where are you going? Esther, where are you going? Esther, you can't do that. I'm going. I've got to go. My people's lives depend on it. Esther, you can't. And she comes to the threshold of the throne room and she takes a breath and she steps in. She is filled with fear, but she is filled more with courage. I want you to hear very carefully what, I want, what I'm getting ready to say to you. It is that courage is not the opposite of fear. And courage is not the absence of fear. Great theologian, Mark Twain. <laughs> kidding, he wasn't a great theologian. But Mark Twain once said, courage is resistance to fear. Courage is mastery over fear. But courage is not the absence of fear. In fact, I would suggest to you that most people who live out courage, uh, encourage or make courageous decisions are trembling when they make it. But courage pushes back against the fear. Courage overrides and overcomes the fear. Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 9 says this, God speaking to Joshua, be strong and of, a, and of good courage. Do not be afraid, neither be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Fear gives way to strength and, and a strong heart, a courageous heart. In fact, the word courage comes from the Latin word cor, C-O-R, which means your heart. And it, it means literally to be strong of heart. Even when you're trembling in your boots to have a valiant or a resolute heart and to overcome fear with conviction. Psalm 31 and verse 24 says, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. I love that verse. Be of good courage, even in your fear. Be of good courage and God will strengthen your heart. All ye that hope in the Lord. And so God gave Esther in this moment of rescue, this moment of intervention, this moment where she risked everything, God gave her a strong and a courageous heart. And we need the same thing. So in closing, let me wrap up my time with you by simply encouraging you in a few ways that she received a strong and courageous heart and we need it in the same way. Number one, God gave to Esther courage to help. Courage to help. I mentioned earlier uh, in verses 1 through 9 that all of the Jewish lives in the Persian Empire were at risk. Um, they were all slated to die, young and old, men and women, it didn't matter, children, toddlers, infants, they were all going to die. And all of those Jewish people needed help. And they needed help from the only person they could get it from who was Esther. And all of them were certain to die and living in great fear. 
And if Esther couldn't find the courage to overcome her fear, then she couldn't help those who were living in fear. Now, if y'all are listening, say amen. You and I are living in a day when the world is gripped by fear. Every day you interact with people who are living in fear. People that you love who are in your family are so afraid. People that you work with, your neighbors, they are so afraid. And they're afraid of a lot of things. They're afraid of coronavirus. They're afraid of what's going to happen with the election. They're afraid of what's going on in our nation. They're afraid of where America will be in a matter of months or, or, or years. They're afraid. And if the church, are you listening? If the church is afraid then people who are locked down in fear can't help people who are locked down in fear. And so the only way that we can help the world in which we live is to let the courage rise within us and not live in fear, but have the courage to help. Everybody that you know is one day gonna die and they're gonna spend eternity somewhere either in heaven or hell, and they are afraid, most of them are, and all of them should be if they don't know Christ, they are afraid of death. And you and I, like Esther, are the only ones that have the answer to that. Only, only the church has the answer to the fear of death. And if we don't have the courage to speak into their lives, if we don't have the courage to share the gospel with them, if we don't have the courage to invite and bring them to a place where they can learn it, then how will they ever be helped? We need courage to help. Courage to share the gospel. Courage to rescue the perishing. God gave Esther courage to help. He also gave her courage to hope. You see this in verses 10 through 14. I love verse number 14 where, where she having said to him uh, in verses 12 and 13, I'm, I'm going to die, verse 11 and 12, I'm going to die if I do this. And he responds to her beginning in, in verse number 12, 13, 14. He says, you're going to die anyway. It's a logical answer, right? She says, if I go up for the king, I'm going to die. He says, you're going to die anyway. Don't think you're going to survive if you remain quiet. You're a Jew. And you will die. And so he says, don't live the days that you have in fear, waiting to die. Live the days that you have in courage, uh, in, courage in, in courage and a courageous heart, doing what God called you to do until the day that you do die. I love how that he says to her in verse number 14, and don't you get it? This is your moment. This is why God has you here. Can I be the voice of Mordecai to all of you today? Don't you get it? You are living in this time because God placed you here. This is your day. You're living in the midst of coronavirus. You're the church in the age when the world and the nation is locked down in fear. Don't you live in fear. You live in courage to help those who are living in fear. This is your moment. Psalm 91 and verse 5 says, we have nothing to fear. Mordecai says to her, essentially, believe that God will protect you and God will guard you and God will go before you and God will keep his promises to you and don't pine your days away in fear. 
I've determined by the grace of God, I'm just not going to live in fear. I'm not going to be foolish, but I'm not going to live in fear. Because there's a work that God has called us to do. And the time for fear is past and the time for courage has arrived. God's people need to rise up in courage. Thirdly and finally, God gave Esther courage to hide. And by that I mean to hide in him. And let me tell you what I mean. To hide in his mercy. Verses 15, 16, and 17 uh, contain her reply her response to Mordecai. This famous response where she says, okay, go gather all the Jews you can, have them fast and pray. I'll fast and pray. Let's do this for three days. And verse number 16 says, and so I will break the law and I will risk my life and I will go in before the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's, that's courage, man. At that point, she has resolved herself to the care of Almighty God. And she says, I can hide in my sovereign God and his protection. He covers me. Really, she's casting herself at the mercy of God and the mercy of King Ahasuerus. Essentially, what she is saying is, I'm going to resolve to trust God with my life. He's put me here for a reason. I'm going to live that reason out in courage. I'm going to trust God with the results. It's up to him. And whatever happens to me is what happens to me. But I'm going to do what God called me to do. She's hiding in his covering. You all with me? Hiding in his care. And by the way, this is really the, the courage of salvation hope as well. I, I have put my courage in the person of Jesus Christ. I have for my own salvation. I've never been to heaven, but I believe it's real. I've never seen Jesus physically, but I believe he's real. I wasn't here when he died and rose from the dead, but I believe he did die and rise from the dead. And I have put all of my hope, I'm hiding myself in Christ. And so here's the thing. If I go to hell, I will go to hell trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Now I'm not going because I have the courage and the faith to know that I can hide in 